0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 27, verse 13. Take the garment of him who is surety for a stranger. And hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. Proverbs teaches us that debt in general is a trap. The borrower is servant to the lender. And therefore we should not enter into debt lightly. But taking on other people's debt is what becoming surety is. It is co-signing on their loan. And the Proverbs clearly teach that we shouldn't become surety for others. In fact, we should run the other way, even for our friends. When it comes to lending, the Mosaic Law and the Proverbs teach us to be generous and kind to the poor and to the needy to not exact usury, charge high interest rates. And specifically the law in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy chapter 24 commanded the Israelites to return the poor poor man's garment or pledge to him at night so that he isn't cold and destitute or humiliated. This proverb is virtually the same as Proverb 20 verse 16 except for That that proverb emphasized foreigners instead of seductresses. Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for foreigners. Both of these proverbs offer wisdom that on a technical basis subverts the teaching of Moses' law. It's commanding us to hold the pledge instead of returning it. So how does that reconcile? In actuality, these proverbs are interpreting the law and showing us what godly wisdom is. Not becoming surety and avoiding the traps of the seductress. Basically, this proverb means that you should not go out on a limb for a man who's being a fool financially. Especially if he's not thinking clearly because it involves a girl. The garment was a security deposit, and holding it in pledge means holding him accountable for his folly. You should not become party to his sin because enabling it puts your capital at risk, and it ultimately would make you a fool too. Instead, holding him accountable is a form of declaring the gospel. You become an instrument in God's hands, saying what God says about his life choices. That the pathway to the seductress. Reduces a man to crumbs. This is wisdom. And it is difficult. Godliness means discernment. And it is far harder. To go through the hard work of deciphering. When it is time to show mercy. And when it is time to speak truth. And draw a line in the sand. It is far harder to do. That than just taking a cookie cutter approach of either mercy all of the time, which ultimately is hurtful to the people you're trying to help and will completely wear you out. It's harder than that that approach or the cookie cutter approach of no generosity whatsoever. That just turns you into a Scrooge. Morality and justice require godly men and women to invest themselves in generosity. With wisdom, and that takes humility, prayer, conviction, and courage. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So, if you're willing to do Father in heaven, we come before you as broken and repentant people. You've called us out of darkness into light. You've called us into your presence. We've confessed our sin. You've proclaimed our pardon. Father, we rejoice in this. Father, as we now come to your word, as we study the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering and dying, Father, we pray that you would consecrate us, teach us, how you would have us live. Teach us to remember what our Lord has done for us. Teach us to embrace the redemption that you have accomplished on our behalf and the rich and full and deep love that you've poured out upon us. Father, we ask for your blessing now as we hear your word proclaimed. May they be words of truth may your name be magnified in all of it. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It's the first day of the Holy Week on the Christian calendar. You may not know this, but it's also called the Sunday of the Passion. And so there are different texts in the lectionary to select from, because of these different themes of this Sunday. So while today is Palm Sunday, in which we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry, it's also the Sunday of the Passion, where we consider and dwell upon our Lord's Passion, His suffering. And you may have noticed that we went with the passion text this morning in our our scripture reading. Isaiah 53, the story of the crucifixion in Luke 23. And Jesus humbling of himself in Philippians chapter 2. This whole week we remember Christ's suffering and we focus in particular on the end of his life. And that makes our continuing study of the Apostles' Creed, very appropriate today. Because today we're covering, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell in the third day. That's the chunk of the Creed that we're covering today. It's all about the end of Jesus' life. Our text this morning is John 12 verse 27. And from our text, we see that This was the purpose for which Jesus came. Our text. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. This is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this purpose. That I came to this time and place. Jesus came to die. Likewise also in Matthew 20. we, Jesus tells us that was the purpose for which he came. Just as the son of man did not come to be served. But to serve and to give his life. A ransom for many. That is why Jesus came. His passion. His suffering. His Patient, humble obedience, accomplished our salvation. That was his redemptive work. He redeemed us from sin, and he set us free from the power of death and the accusations of the devil. He gives us a clear conscience before God, and he restores us into relationship with. God, sweet, open, and loving relationship with God. Now last week I mentioned Good Thursday, so we begin with some discussion on the timeline of the Passion. We have a Good Friday service coming up this week. Traditionally, the church has celebrated Christ's death on Friday. Why is that? How did we get Good Friday? Well, because the Bible says that the Jews requested that the criminal's legs be broken so that they could be taken down from the cross before the beginning of the Sabbath, which would have been sunset of that day. So they wanted their legs broken so they could be taken down and Buried so they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. Otherwise they would be stuck hanging there over the course of the Sabbath, which would have been a curse on the land. That's from the law. That you don't leave people hanging over over overnight. So traditionally we understand that the Sabbath was Saturday. There was a weekly Sabbath. It was the seventh day of the week. God rested from the labor that he had done. He hallowed that day. And because of that, we don't work on the Sabbath. So the church traditionally interpreted this then as Friday that Jesus was crucified. So why did I say good Thursday last week? In the Gospels, Jesus had prophesied that he would be dead for three days and three nights. And then he would be raised from the dead. In Mark 8, verse 31, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus repeats this prophecy again in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark chapter 10, verse 34 as well. He also said that when they asked for a sign, he said that no sign would be given to this generation but the sign of Jonah. That the Son of Man would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Like Jonah spent three days and three nights in the well, the belly of the the fish. There is no way to do the Mass so that you get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday. Wednesday or Thursday, yes, but there's no way you get it from Friday. Why does this matter? Why am I bringing this up? Well, it's in the Bible, and we believe that consistency is important. We profess that we believe in the Bible. We we profess that we believe that the Bible teaches us the truth. We don't check our minds at the door. We don't have a blind faith that is a foolish faith. We are invited to exercise our minds by our loving God who calls us to love him with all of our minds. It's also related to the Heidelberg Catechism question number forty-one, which asks us why was Jesus buried, and the answer was to show thereby that he was really dead. If he was dead and buried for three days and three nights, it eliminates a lot of the supposition that modern crit- critics will will bring out that well he wasn't really dead, or it was he was he was just in a very calm state where his heart was going really slow. No, three days and three nights you're dead. So how do we reconcile this, three days and three nights, in the heart of the earth, with the former text that said that Jesus had to be buried before the Sabbath, which would have made it a Friday. The Gospel of John gives us a hint in chapter 19. Starting at verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine. He said it is finished. And bowing his head he gave up his spirit. Therefore because it was the preparation day. That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. And then in parentheses it says. For that Sabbath was a high day. In parentheses, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. And that they might be taken away. So what is this preparation day and high day? It's speaking about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the law, Moses appointed seven high Sabbaths throughout the year. That means they fell on a calendar day, not on a weekday necessarily. The first and the last days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were high Sabbaths. The Passover was on the 14th day of the first month. It was not a high Sabbath. But it was followed by the 15th day of the month, which was the first day of unleavened bread. And it was a high Sabbath, the very next day. And if you want to look this up, it's in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 8. So the Passover was the preparation day. The day in which they prepared for The unleavened feast. The unleavened feast. The dinner that was prepared. They sacrificed the lamb. For the Passover feast. In the temple. On the preparation day. And that night. After sunset. They ate the Passover feast. After the the, the start of the Sabbath. Incidentally. Jesus was crucified. At the same time that the lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover feast. So why Thursday and not Wednesday? Right? So we can do Wednesday or Thursday. Why Thursday and not Wednesday? Well, first of all, there's no way to be dogmatic about this. We, we, we can't say, you know, just absolute surety. The Bible doesn't say, and Jesus died on Thursday. But we can be, or we might be, persuasive. It has to do with the preparations for anointing Jesus with spices. In Mark 16, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. If it were good Wednesday, then they would have been able to anoint his body on Friday, which would have been a normal work day. But because it was likely a Thursday, they would have had two Sabbaths back to back, where Friday was a Sabbath, a high Sabbath, and uh, Saturday was the, the regular weekday Sabbath. And so they had to wait two days, and then on the evening of Saturday... They could do exactly what it says here. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices. They prepared for wrapping his body with spices, embalming him. And so, very early in the morning, on the next day, they went that night and prepared. They bought the spices, and then early the next day, they go to the tomb to be the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And more on that next week. For now, we turn to the narrative of the Passion of our Lord. This story is familiar and rich, and it is central to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The Passion, the story of his death. It's familiar because it is told every time we tell the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus came and died for our sins. But let's not let the familiarity of the story get get in the way of our retelling it. We love to tell the story as the hymn goes. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and the cross. We love to tell the story because it is rich. It is beautiful and it is salvific. It occupies a huge chunk of biblical real estate. We have four different accounts of it. And each account brings something different to it. A different perspective. A different light is shed on the cross and on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew presents the cross as the fulfillment of the messianic promises of the Old Testament. Matthew's all about Jesus is the New Israel. Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In Mark, it isn't until the Roman Centurion observes Jesus' death that a man, in the book of Mark declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that is a major theme throughout the book of Mark that Jesus is the son of the God is the son of God the demons proclaim it the narrative tells us it but it's not until after the crucifixion that a Roman centurion beholding what happens is true this man was the son of God it's at the cross that he is revealed in Luke we get a picture of Jesus passion and grief at the cross Sweating great drops of blood. And John presents the cross as Jesus' victory over Satan. At the cross, in the book of John, Jesus is lifted up. And all men behold the King of the Jews. At the end of the book, he declares to his disciples, Ought not the Christ to have passed through this suffering? That's what the scriptures tell us. This is glory. The cross is glory in the book of John. The reason that the passion narrative takes up so much space in the pages of scripture. Is that the cross is at the crossroads of our faith. Everything comes together at the cross. The cross is the fulcrum of history. It's the balancing point. Everything comes together at the cross. God's love and His justice meet at the cross. His mercy and His holy plan for our salvation are revealed at the cross. The condemnation of sin and the redemption of all God's people are revealed at the cross. This is where Jesus finishes His work. In submitting to God's will and in a humiliating death, Jesus conquers death and he paves the way for the renewal of all things. So what happened? What is the narrative? What is the story? The Apostles' Creed starts with Christ's suffering under Pontius Pilate, but it bears mentioning that the events which came immediately before that... Are truly a part of the extent to which our Lord entered into our misery and suffering. I'm speaking of Judas's betrayal. I'm speaking of the agony in Gethsemane. I'm speaking of the trials of the Jews. Notice Jesus' extreme anguish at what he knew was about to suffer. This happened right after he instituted the Lord's Supper. And after Judas left to betray him. He took his disciples to the garden. We already read, but we didn't read this yet this morning. Um, Luke twenty-two, starting at verse forty-one. And Jesus knelt down and prayed, saying, "Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That is powerful emotional stress. Jesus was in agony. He knew what he was in for. He knew what was coming. He begged God to take it away from him, and yet he persisted to go into that way that God had laid out for him, because that was our Father's will for him. After his deep agony, his, this stress which drove his sweat into drops of blood, his betrayer comes, Judas. And betrays him with a kiss. A kiss like a friend. He betrays him to death. Jesus was arrested by the Jews. They tried him before Caiaphas and Annas separately. The whole time they mocked him and beat him and slapped him. They they brought false charges against him. They lied to him. They lied about him. In the meantime, Peter betrayed him three times. And Jesus was abandoned by all his disciples. Left alone, just like in Psalm 22, like we sang this morning. As we read in our text from Luke chapter 23, he then suffered under Pontius Pilate. Early in the morning... The Jews bring him to Pontius Pilate and they lie about Jesus. They accused him of telling the people that they weren't they didn't have to pay taxes. But Pilate sent Jesus on to Herod, who had him beat and mocked and dressed up like a clown and sent back to Pilate. Pilate did not want to condemn Jesus, but he was weak, and ultimately he succumbed to the people. Offering Jesus up to be publicly humiliated with beatings, thorns, mocking, and judicial murder. Next, as the creed says, he was crucified, dead, and buried. They made him carry his own cross until he stumbled and was unable to the place of the skull outside the city gate. They disrobed him and nailed him naked to the cross about the third hour. So early in the morning, they show up at Pilate's door. By nine o'clock, they've nailed him to the cross. Nine o'clock in the morning. They string him up alongside two other criminals. That justly deserve the punishment that they're receiving. The scriptures record seven different sayings that Jesus said on the cross. Luke chapter 23. The first thing he says. As they're nailing him to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He has compassion. Even as they're murdering him, he has compassion on them. Next he says... As he's hanging on the cross, he looks out, he sees his mother, and he says, Woman, behold your son! And he looks over and he sees John, and he says, Behold your mother. Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. He had a responsibility to care for her. He exercised that responsibility by shifting it to his. First cousin, John, son of Zebedee. And from that moment on, Mary became the responsibility of John. So even on the cross, Jesus didn't fail to uphold his responsibilities, to exercise righteousness. Then at the ninth hour, this would have been at 6 p.m. Jesus says Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani which is Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, I thirst, John chapter 19. And he says, it is finished. And he closes with, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The text tells us that there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And when he died, the temple veil was torn in half. And there was a great earthquake. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus... Buried Jesus in the tomb. And now we're asked, we're forced to ask, why the cross? Did Jesus have to be crucified? And the answer is yes. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Don't you see that everything that Jesus did his whole life was consistent with what he said back in the Sermon on the Mount. That the whole law, every jot and tittle must be fulfilled. He was fulfilling the law. He was fulfilling the prophecies He was fulfilling Isaiah 53. He was fulfilling the Passover. He was fulfilling the high priestly duty. He was fulfilling the servant kingship. The creed next says that he descended into hell. Here we come to another of our biblical conundrums. This is something that... uh, I've talked to several people over the years about, and a lot of people are confused about this. And mostly, the conundrum mostly comes from a misunderstanding of our language, historically. In the Latin and the Greek, the term translated as hell is Hades, which would be the place of the dead, Sheol in the Hebrew. So he descended into Hades. Now, this is different from hell as it has been understood in English since the 1700s. Since the 1700s, in English, hell has been mostly synonymous with Gehenna, the lake of fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's the bad place where bad people go when they die. Now that leads to a common misunderstanding that we think that Jesus went on to to three more days and nights of terrible torment in the lake of fire. However, this is incorrect. Because remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. And the thief said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today... You will be with me in paradise. Does that sound like three more days of lake of fire? No, it does not. Jesus did not go to suffer. Rather, he went to proclaim his victory over death and the binding of Satan and his demons to the dead. His presence turned Abraham's bosom which is what he mentions in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus died, the rich man died. And Jesus talks about heaven and hell before he died. And he says, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom where he was comforted. And there was a great gulf between him and the rich man who was tormented. Jesus' presence in Abraham's bosom turns... Abraham's bosom into paradise. Because paradise is being in God's presence. Right? That's what Paul says. To depart is better. It's to be in the presence of the Lord. That's paradise. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3 verse 19. He says, By whom also he Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, admittedly, this is an obscure passage. But what he's talking about here is Jesus went and preached, declared his victory to the spirits in prison. The dead that were locked in Hades. The other thing that Jesus did about this time is he moved paradise, Abraham's bosom, from below to above there's some very weird things that happen. I don't know if you've read through your Bibles and you get to this part of, the, of Matthew. It's, there's some weird stuff here. Listen to what happens. Matthew 27 starting at verse 15. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. That's speaking of the centurion who was guarding the tomb. Now, what is what's going on there? Jesus dies. They they bury him. And he goes down and he declares his victory to the dead. And after his resurrection, Jesus moves paradise from below to above. Abraham's bosom. Now, because of the accomplishment of our redemption, we can now be in the presence of God the Father... The dead can now be in the presence of God the Father. The sanctified, the redeemed dead can be in the presence of God the Father. So Jesus split Hades in half, and he said, Gehenna, the bad place, is going to stay down. It's down, and so that's partly why we talk about hell is down, but heaven is up to be with the presence to be in the presence of our Lord who. Ascended into heaven. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4 also. He says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. This, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what did Jesus do when he died? He went to Hades and declared his victory. And the reconciliation of mankind with God the Father. And at his resurrection. He led his people out. It's a a new exodus. He led his people out. Of of the valley of, of death. Out of the slavery to death. Into the freedom and the life of God the Father. So why does all of this matter? What is so important about this bizarre and grandiose narrative? The answer is that this is the story of Jesus' redemptive work. God created the world. 4,000 years since the first hints of the gospel to Adam... 3,000 years since the picture of the gospel in the flood to Noah. 2,000 years since the covenant with Abraham. 1,500 years since the covenant and the establishment of his people Israel through Moses. And 1,000 years since David. God has finally displayed His sovereign and perfect plan for the salvation and redemption of mankind. After thousands of years of sacrifices and ritual and shadows and types and prophecies and songs and hopes and dreams, we behold the glory of the King of Kings laying His life down so that He might pick it up again Our God has reconciled us to himself. He has provided the perfect atonement. He paid for our sins. He washed away our guilt and shame. In the most painful and sacrificial way there is. In suffering and the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself and submitted to God's way. He humbled himself to the point of death. Just as we read in Philippians 2. That is what he came for. That's what John the Baptist prophesied about him immediately after he baptized him and anointed him to be the Christ. In John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day when John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he came. That's who he is. The passion tells us how he did it. Peter gives us more. He tells us the purpose of God for us in this. For you and for me. 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 23. Who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, this is why he did it, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. The cross is fuel for our righteousness. Many times in the Bible, it tells us to patiently endure. To give up sinful attitudes and actions. Many times it tells us... There's, I could go on and on and on reading the verses that tell us it's the cross that's our motivation for doing this. I'm just going to go to the Philippians passage since we read that this morning. That Jesus humbled himself to the point of the cross. And I'm going to just go into the context there. This is what the plan is in the cross for us, for you, for me. This is what God wants from us. Starting at Philippians 1.27 Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember? That we might live for righteousness. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then we get the passage that we read. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who humbled himself. All the way to the point of death. And he did it because God rewarded it. It wasn't wasn't a, a foolish sacrifice that he made. He did it because of the joy that was set before him. So that now he has a name which is above every name. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And every man, woman, and child must bow the knee and confess with their mouth that He is Lord. And He rights all wrongs. And He judges everything. He's the judge. That's what we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel. After Paul gives us that glorious passage, he closes with, more for what this means for you and for me. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. To live in righteousness is what God is calling us to. To be His people, His children, His witnesses. Because at the cross, Jesus showed us what our salvation costs. And how much God loves us. That's what He showed us. Our obedience Is nothing but our gratitude. Our obedience is is our gratitude. And it's our declaration. Of God's good work. The the work that he accomplished for us. The work that he is accomplishing. In us. Because we see him crucified. We live for righteousness. Because we've died to sin. We live for Christ. Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, we rejoice, and thank you because of your rich redemption you have accomplished for us. We praise you that In your mercy, you sent your Son to go through unspeakable agony and torment, undeserved, for our benefit. Father, we pray that this week you will impress upon us how much you love us, how much you valued us. Help us to remember what our Lord went through. So that we might remember how good and how great and how kind and how loving and how merciful you have been to us. Father, we pray that you would work your works of righteousness in us. Build us up. Strengthen us. Cause us to be of one mind. Cause us to love one another. Cause us to put each other before ourselves. Cause us to be like our Lord. To love you. All of our heart, soul, strength, and love. Father, we now conclude. the glorious sacrifice that Jesus accomplished for us. His bread is His body. He gave Himself to be food for us. Just like the Passover lamb was all in, Jesus didn't just partly die. Just like the blood of the lamb covered the doorposts so that the angel of death passed over, Jesus' blood covered the cross so that God passes over our sin and Jesus redeems us from death. The instrument by which this is accomplished is faith. God has done this. Jesus is His Son, sent to die for our sin, to bear our stripes, to suffer for our transgressions. He came, He died, and God raised Him from the dead. God set him in glory with all power and authority over heaven and earth. And Jesus reigns at God's right hand until every enemy will be subdued under him. Do you believe? Then come and welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This table is for all who are baptized Christians under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.